we're starting with the coach market because one, I think they're an important kind of collaborators in helping us be successful. We want this to be the greatest tool that a coach can have in their back pocket, right? Like they don't need to invest $60,000 for a system in a lab setting. They can just get all the analysis they need right there on their phone. So we want this to be an amazing tool for them to help them teach better, learn more, and make more money. I'm Roberto, professional golfer and aspiring business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Holderness and Born. We're mixing it up this week and running a very cool custom apparel giveaway with H&B. The action is all happening over on their Instagram account, at Holderness Born. We're giving away custom logoed course record show gear. The shirt is my all-time favorite golf shirt, the Maxwell, and the quarter zip is the Somerville, a midway piece that I live in when the weather cools down. Both pieces feature the Castro-designed CRS logo on the sleeve. Check it out on their Insta. We'll choose a winner this Friday, August 13th, and send exact sizes. To win, subscribe to the Course Record Show podcast and go over to Holderness Born on Instagram. On today's episode of the Course Record Show, we talked to Jihei Lee. Jihei played college golf at Yale before acing LPGA Q School on her first try. After three years, she stepped away from pro golf, went to business school, and joined Top Golf. Today, she's founder and CEO of Sportsbox AI, a promising startup in the golf and sports coaching space. We cover a lot of ground in the conversation. Jihei is highly intelligent, engaging, and has a bright future in the golf business. Hope you enjoy the conversation, and please make sure to stick around afterwards for the takeaway section, where Roberto and I will break down some of the biggest findings from our discussion. Jihei, thanks so much for joining us. One thing that fascinates me is why people play golf and how that changes throughout their lives. You played on the Yale golf team as a freshman, didn't play for a few years, and then rejoined the team your senior year. Then you had a stint in professional golf before going back to business school. How did your relationship with the game evolve over that time? And why do you play when you play now? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. And I think the answer is would be different, would have been different at different stages of my life, as you could have probably guessed. I think when I was growing up, it was just kind of my thing. You know, my sister was a very accomplished piano piano player. And I think my parents wanted me to do something extracurricular wise and have my own talent that I wanted that I could develop. So it was just my thing. I went to practice every day after school and um, I was kind of good at it. So I just kept going. And I think it kind of gave me an identity through uh, my adolescent years and high school and such. And then at Yale, you know, after playing my freshman year uh, and spending three, four nights a week away from school for tournaments, I started asking myself for the first time in my life, like, do I really need to play golf? <laughs> right? Why am I playing golf? Is this going to do anything for me after college? And for the first time in my life, I, I just kind of like questioned the role of golf in my life. And I felt like I had a choice. And I said, you know what, I want to go pursue other things. I want to be active on campus. I want to go abroad. So I kind of left the game for a while. But then my senior year, I went back to because um, one, I had a job lined up <laughs> and it just kind of seemed like fun. I, I mean, the, the team was having a lot of fun. We had a great new coach. And so I kind of jumped back in without much expectation. But for the first time in my life, I kind of chose golf out of my own volition. And that completely changed my relationship with the game. I chose it. I wanted to work at it. And once I turned pro, it played a completely different role in my life. I guess in summer, you, I could say like I fell in love with golf more and more as I grew up and as I chose golf, you know, actively chose golf to play golf. And now when I play, I play to spend time with my friends and my husband. My husband started playing two and a half years ago and it just brings me a lot of joy to be out there. And I know this sounds cheesy, but like 
when I'm out there at a golf course where people I enjoy, you know, hanging out with, like, I just feel really grateful. So, yeah. Very cool. So after you wrapped up your pro career, you had a stint managing Michelle Wee's career as well. That sounds like the coolest job in the <laughs> world from where I sit. But tell us, what's one thing you really liked about that business? And what's one thing you really did not like about the managing athletes business? Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a dream job coming out of uh, competitive golf and being able to work with one of the most iconic players in the game. And, and at the time, the data showed that she is the third most recognizable or like third most famous golfers in the world. Like it was Tiger, Phil, and then Michelle. If you asked anybody named three golfers, she likely would have been the third person that most people mentioned or, or the first, but the top three. So it was a really a, a privilege and an honor to work with an athlete like that, a brand like that. And it was just an added bonus that she happened to be my, my best friend that I would hang out with on a regular basis anyway. So I guess the pros, if you're talking about pros and cons, the pros are kind of obvious. Working with a great athlete, great brand, and all the sponsors that she had, Nike Golf and Kia, make all these global major brands that spend lots and lots of dollars in, on their, their sports marketing and you know, Michelle was one of their star assets. So it was really cool to learn how these brands activated a, a ambassador like Michelle Wee. So it was a great learning experience. The, I guess the cons, when I quit golf, when I was wanted to step away from the game, I really wanted to get away from it and quote unquote, having to get back on the road in this different, you know, capacity was something that I didn't want for myself, right? Like I wanted a brand new fresh start and I just kind of felt like a continuation of, of my previous life. So looking back, I mean, net net, obviously I wouldn't trade that experience for the world, but at the time I felt like I had kind of, uh, remained savvy, right. Instead of moving forward. That makes sense. Some people try to stay golf adjacent whenever they move from college golf or professional golf and then i have a friend who was like i just wanted to go in a completely different direction and he got into real estate now he plays golf five days a week for real estate but he circled back to yeah. it yeah yeah it, it just kind of brings you back you know look at me i'm still in golf so <laughs> yeah well let's talk about that let's talk about business you have a degree from yale and an mba from wharton giving you pretty much unlimited opportunity in any industry why choose the golf business? Yeah, I don't know about unlimited opportunity, but yeah, I guess I could have gone a more traditional route. You know, when I went to Wharton, I honestly didn't really know what I wanted to do with the degree. So I explored a little bit and I could have gone the more traditional route, you know, this with banking, consulting, whatever have you. But I'm really glad that I came across Top Golf and joined that company at the stage that it was in. I mean, it just kind of gave me, exposed me to like the traditional business side of things. Because Topgolf, when I joined, it was a hospitality company, right? They made more money from food and beverage than from golf and even related to golf. So it exposed me to that. But I, I think, I guess I'm now more directly in the golf industry with what I'm doing with Sportsbox. And I think the reason for that is because time and again, I realized being in golf, being around golf people, talking about golf makes me happy, genuinely. I just, I feel more like myself and more like my best self when I'm in those situations, you know? So I was just at the US Open, I guess three weeks ago, was it? And it was kind of a reunion of sorts for the golf industry folks, because it, it had been since the, uh, the players in 2020 since like golf industry folks attended a golf event for business reasons so there were tons and tons of people that you know friends that i hadn't seen in a year and a half and i just felt so happy to be in that environment again like seeing those people so i think i think i'm in it for the long run <laughs> so we'll get to what you're doing most recently in a bit but but sticking with top golf a little bit do you do you still see top golf as an entertainment company or do you see it as a tech company? An interesting question. Or is it a golf company now, now that it's been acquired by Callaway? It's really a mix of all those things. If you just isolate the venue business, you know, uh, Top Golf's venue business, it's it's an entertainment company, no doubt. When you step into a venue, you know, like that 
that like any other <laughs> suspicion is uh, it go, kind of goes away. You see people drinking and partying in heels and in bachelor party groups, like just having a great time, whether they hit one ball or, you know, 30 shots. So it really is an entertainment concept. I agree with that. I have a member at a gym here that's, it's been around for at least a decade in Atlanta. So the concept was fitness with a golf angle and they had a couple simulators and really high-end trainers and they had some tour players working out there and, and it's done well, but when Top Golf kind of ascended, they finally looked at each other and they were like, alcohol. That's really was the missing piece here. And the first thing you said was, you walk in, people are drinking. And so it was kind of like a self-deprecating joke that maybe if they'd have put a keg in the corner, it would have been the next Top Golf. Yeah. I mean, golf is almost like a, like in the backdrop, right? It's just an activity. It could be bowling. It could be whatever. It's just Top Golf is so good at creating that environment and bringing people together. And their core values include things like, you know, making moments that matter for everybody, right? That's, that's what they want to accomplish. That's their brand purpose. It's not about making people into great golfers or whatever else have you. So when you joined in 2015, they had roughly 28 locations. And at the end of 2020, they had 70 locations. What do you think made it so successful? And what part of that growth trajectory were you most directly involved with? Yeah, actually, when I joined in July, I think they only had like 15 or 16 venues. Really? Yeah. So obviously the venue business saw a huge amount of growth fueled by the the raise some equity and and debt and and to kind of fuel that growth once they figured out the the model, right? Like this is exactly how we're going to make the the venues, like literally cookie cutter. We're just going to go build a whole bunch of these things. We just need the capital to do it. And they did successfully. But the part of the growth that I was most directly involved with were when they made acquisitions like ProTracer and turned it into Top Tracer and Top Tracer range. When they acquired World Golf Tour, which is a a golf game company and created Top Golf Media and uh, partnered with Full Swing Golf to create Top Golf Swing Suite. Like I was part of every one of those new business units in actually formalizing the business and creating different revenue streams within those and sometimes actually operating those business within business units to drive growth for the brand. So you mentioned some of those innovation arms for Topgolf and I know you were involved in Top Tracer, which you mentioned, as well as Topgolf Live. Did you, or the Topgolf rather, see those arms as their own business units or as a bit of a gateway drug into the venue business? Yeah, the business units were formerly, you know, Top Golf Media, which has a lot of the original content and sponsorship and the legacy game business. The purpose of Top Golf Media really, really was to drive the growth of the brand and like get the brand to as wide of an audience as possible, whether it's digital or physical. So being able to bring the brand in the form of a stadium experience or at an F1 event, like that all fit in nicely. Every time we did one of those events, we generated hundreds of millions kind of earned media impressions, especially when we aligned them with like new venue launches in that city. Like it just worked so strategically for, for the brand, like announcing the, the arrival of a new venue with a big event like that. So I forget what the original question was. <laughs> I think you answered it, which is whether those were thought of as standalone businesses oh, or yeah. as an entry point into the venue business. And I think you yeah. went towards the latter. Yeah. yeah. You also alluded to the fact that Callaway acquired Topgolf. I know it was announced last year and closed this year. $2.6 billion acquisition. In your mind, who's the big winner in that deal? Oh, Callaway, no doubt. <laughs> Callaway, for sure. Well, I mean, timing-wise, it's no secret that Topgolf was trying to go public early on in the year, but the pandemic kind of derailed that those plans, and they had to have some kind of an equity event to keep keep growing. So Callaway kind of got a steal with that valuation. I think what that valuation says to me is that they bought the venue business for that price, and all of the other business units that I mentioned, like you know, media and swimsuit and uh, top tracer and top tracer range, which are growth business units, they were valued at zero reasons. So like top tracer range is a phenomenal business. I was part of that the year uh, preceding my departure from Top Golf. 
basically the technology, a pair of top tracer cameras can track shots hit from 10 bays across and multiple floors. So like if you have a three-story driving range, a pair of top tracer cameras can track shots from 30 bays simultaneously. And so you can turn a 30 bay driving range into something like a top golf where you can hit, you can, you know, play top golf like games or play Pebble Beach in St. Andrews or do long drive competitions right there in your driving range using a pair of cameras. Are you kidding me? So, and that business was on kind of like this hockey stick kind of a trajectory of growth and was only at 1% penetration globally in terms of like the total market availability. So to get that business for $0, I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind, Cowboys are winning. So you think that that top tracer range will be at tons of country clubs? Because the only thing I've seen at like two places, because the price is exorbitant, is the TrackMan range. This does the similar thing at a much lower price point? Much lower. As I mentioned, two cameras can track so many bays simultaneously. So um, it's actually very, very cost efficient. So they're starting to get into grass ranges, but they're, they have a pretty high success rate with kind of covered ranges, okay. especially in Asia. Yeah, you, you just made a pretty strong case for Callaway in that acquisition. <laughs> yeah, that, fun fact, half of the world's driving range, I think more than half the world's driving ranges are in uh, Japan and Korea. And, you know, the top, I, don't, I don't think Trackman range or any other competitor has an installation in either of those markets, all top tracer range. Wow, that's cool. Well, within the last year, you left Top Golf and founded a new company called Sportsbox.ai, which you're the CEO of. Tell us about that company, what the thesis of the business is, and the market you're pursuing. Yeah, so Sportsbox AI, we're a computer vision AI company that's able to turn a 2D video, so a video taken from your mobile phone or whatever camera, single camera, and uh, turn it into a full 3D motion analysis. So it's like a markerless motion capture studio built into your mobile phone. So all of the biomechanical analysis that you would want to do with any kind of athletic motion, whether it's golf or tennis or baseball or, you know, fitness movement, like, I don't know, uh, Pilates and yoga, you can get all the body segments, you know, movement in degrees and inches or degrees per second right there on your phone with a single video. And within golf, so we want to go into all these other verticals, but we're starting with a golf product, a golf app that will allow you to do that type of analysis and, and learn something about how to improve your game through just your mobile phone device. And the thesis is that with a single video, we can tell you how to improve your game. We can connect you with a golf professional or coach who can analyze and interpret the data for you and give you recommendations on what you need to do with your swing. We can recommend clubs that fit you better based on your swing speed and load pattern. We can recommend and sell to you swing training aids, right? Like if we're able to diagnose your swing in a drill video that that is targeted at fixing the problems you have, we can also recommend uh, swing training aids that will help you uh, fix your swing problem. So it eventually will become this marketplace where through one video, we can set you on your way to a better game. And what's the next step after golf or next sport? Yeah, and we're still considering um, and doing the market research necessary to pick the next vertical. We're getting lots of different advice and we're also studying what is already out there in different uh, different sports. Gotcha. Um, but we see a huge opportunity in strength and conditioning, where you know a lot of people have been working out in home through a Peloton or Tonal or some kind of an app, and following content that was meant for everyone. And so, regardless of your mobility issues or whatever that you that's unique to you, you're just kind of blindly following a piece of content. So being able to integrate with any of those devices or, or apps to one, give you form feedback so that you don't injure yourself or work out the wrong way. And two, recommend kind of a series of content that is uniquely designed for you and your strengths and weaknesses. I think that's where fitness is headed. And I think we'd have a really, really strong position to, to play a big role in that. That's where my head went immediately was fitness mm-hmm. because I feel like 
as, as much as you try to have correct form and branch out into different exercises, that's it's a massive market. I'd be your first customer for that. So I, <laughs> I love that angle. Yeah. Have you, I assume you've, you've done gears and AMM, that kind of stuff. It's been a few years, but gears is the one that I've been on. And, you know, for the listeners that don't know what gears is and I'll let you explain it, but it's a, it's a simulator bay that you have to wear markers. There's multiple cameras. There's very, very expensive. They only have them at a couple of golf courses per state. So your technology is a very different way to produce the same product, but I'll let you speak to it. No, I'm curious. What did you get out of your gear session? What was useful for you? Like I said, it's been a couple of years, but you know, the biomechanics stuff, it's, it's pretty handy. You really can see where you're applying pressure, where the torque of the body is that you can't see under a shirt or with a 2d video. So that was kind of the big stuff was just, I think a lot of the training tools are useful for affirming a hunch that a great teacher or a great instructor has, and then also displaying to the student what the teacher is trying to say. It's evidence in the teacher's case for the student. I think that's the biggest thing about TrackMan. It's the first one or two times you used it or, or flight scope or whatever, where you know that, that student is like, I'm swinging to the right and I'm hitting it left. That doesn't make sense. And then you show them the data and they're like, okay, well, I understand now. So I think that gears kind of did some of that for me, but it wasn't groundbreaking in my opinion. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is we've been teaching based on video for such a long time. And especially now when there's a lot of like these remote learning tools where you send a video into your coach and they analyze it for you. And it's great if the, the coach already knows your tendencies and they've seen your swing in person. But if you're just blindly sending a video that you took nine out of 10 times, it's probably from the wrong angle. Like by wrong angle, I don't mean like completely out of frame. Like if you're shooting something from down the line, right? From your kind of your right side, I guess, looking at the target. If you have it off by this much, your swing can look steep or shallow or on plane. Like it's just playing tricks with the position of the camera. You don't get the true sense of, okay, my swing is on plane or shallow or like, so you just, teaching based on false information at that point. So being able to show like true objective, absolute degrees and inches, I think it's going to be pretty important and groundbreaking. So how does Sportsbox work in that regard? Do you have a, like a tripod, does it have specific instructions or does it just calculate everything and create the model? Yeah. So basically you just set the phone up or have somebody hold it for you. And we, right now we're supporting just a face on angle. And you take one video using the app or upload a face on slow-moing video. And from that, it generates an avatar that you can spin around to all of the different angles, just like in gears. So you can see that swing from face on, down the line, behind you, from target or above or below and get all of the, the angles. And angles and inches are in absolute measurements, right? Like it's not relative to where the camera is sitting. Okay. Um, so you are getting all of those absolute measurements using that one video. Roberto made an interesting point around the technology sort of confirming and giving evidence to what an instructor was saying. Do you see Sportsbox AI as sort of reversing that where it's more of the diagnostic tool that then an instructor can use and get use that as a launching point for instruction? Or, or do you still see Roberto's sort of order operations prevailing in the future of golf instruction? Yeah, no, I, I think, or I know that it's it's actually going to go the other way fairly soon. So what's really exciting about having all of this data is, and, and having a team that's really well-versed in, versed in uh, machine learning is you put swing data. So we're getting thousands of data points on one single swing on all the different body parts. Put that together with the outcome data, so where the shot went, um, what the club head was doing. Put it together, we will very soon be able to derive insights about what the cause and effect is in a golf swing. So for a six foot one wingspan of this, this kind of skill level of golfer, in order to launch it two degrees higher or make it spin a thousand RPM less or whatever it is, or make it go 20 yards further, 
they need to change this and this and this in their body. So, and that's data, right? Like, and data really doesn't lie. And machine learning can tell us things that like literally big data, like humans cannot process. So all of the advisors uh, in the golf space that we've talked to, um, so, you know, Sean Foley, who is an investor by the way, and Mike Adams and all these, you know, elite coaches, what they're most excited about is what the data and the AI is going to teach them about what the cause and effect is in the golf scene. That's cool. That's really cool. And I think that, I mean, I can give you some cause and effect. I squat into my right hip on the backswing. That's why I carry it 275. You know, I can save you some time on Sportsbox AI. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it may unlock something in your golf swing or, you know, it might tell you something about your golf swing that you didn't know about uh, that is correlated, highly correlated with swing speed. You know, selfishly, that's what I'm in it for, right? Like, I just want to hit it 10 yards further. And uh, human coaches are not able to tell me what it is. So I want my, my app to tell me how I can hit it 260 consistently. <laughs> I knew that's what it's all about. I saw your video that you did <laughs> on just, I just want to hit bombs. I might be, I might be yeah. getting the specifics wrong with the idea, right? Uh, your, your, the video that came out last year. So yeah, um, that's what it is. All right. I mean, it's right. really funny because there are a lot of, you know, through raising money and whatever, um, I've spoken with a lot of powerful and wealthy people who have accomplished incredible things in life. And all they want to do is play better golf. There's like no amount of money they will not spend to to get better at golf. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Callaway had $2.6 billion to buy a top golf. With. Yeah. <laughs> so besides the 10 extra yards... What motivated you to make the jump from Tough Golf to founding your own company? Why did you make the leap? I think the short answer is that I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I think being a professional athlete, especially a, an individual athlete, kind of sets you up to be an entrepreneur. Like you kind of have to do it all on your own and you have to know how to weather the ups and downs, like the extreme ups and downs and just kind of like stay steady, right? Whether you're about to, I mean, you just, you just hit one into the water and you have to save parts and make, make the cut for the weekend or whatever it is. Like you're, you're shitting your pants. Can I, can I say that? <laughs> you can um, say that. We'll allow it. Anyway, I think being a professional athlete really does set you up uh, to be an entrepreneur. And I've always, always wanted to be one. And I even had a little side hustle when I was in business school to explore that a little bit. But I, I think I needed the five years at Top Golf to kind of give me the, the training and the skills and the kind of management and leadership skills in order to actually make the leap. So it, I think it was always uh, in the cards for me. Just last year through the pandemic and, you know, asking myself some existential questions like all of us we're doing it just kind of give, gave me the kick in the pants to actually go do it so do you draw more from what you learned at Yale and Wharton in your current stage or what you learned from the school of hard knocks the LPGA etc like what's what's the biggest teacher for you right now definitely what I've learned outside of school I think what I appreciate now more than ever before are kind of the like team building and team management skills. Those are like, like hard leadership skills, like concrete skills that one needs to develop over the course of their career. And you, you just can't learn that in, in, in books. Sure, I took lots of management classes at it. I had great professors at Wharton, but until I saw it in action from some of my mentors at Top Golf, my bosses, I've, and I've had great bosses, seeing them um, navigate difficult situations and being able to make decisions and really sticking to it and kind of how they motivated all of us to drive towards the company goals. Like all of those things are things you just cannot learn in a school setting. So I'm drawing a lot of a lot of the, the important lessons I learned at Top Golf and and before that to do what I'm doing. That's great, and I agree with you. I think that professional golfers are. It's kind of a hardcore entrepreneurial setting without being in the business world, but simply you're just used to failing a lot. You're just, mm -hmm. every week is 155 failures in one success story. 
-hmm. So if you win five times on tour in 500 starts, play for 20 years, you have a 1% success rate. You're an incredible player. So it's hard to replicate that much failure and that much, you know, kind of stick to itiveness. Yeah. I mean, I've literally never won anything in golf in my life. So <laughs> I'm at a sub 1% success rate. I'm at a sub 1% success rate. And, you know, I've had a decent little career on the PGA tour. I'm rolling my eyes at you two talking about how you've not won anything in golf here. Like, I, let's just, let's just call that out for one second. This is all very relative. So I just want to call it out that it's this, the standard you two are holding yourself to is, is absurd. Yeah. Well, no, well I, I think I did win one AJGA qualifier. I think I won that once when I was like 16. And since then, I have literally never sniffed winning a trophy in golf. So that's yeah. like actual. <laughs> I won a bunch of mini tour events, but they don't give you trophies. They just send you on your way. <laughs> hey, winning a mini tour event in the men's game is like, I mean, you must have shot like 61, 62, whatever. Like, it's really, really tough. So good on you. They send you a check and then sometimes they don't send you a check. So you just <laughs> never know. Awesome. All right. Back to Sportsbox AI. What are the milestones you want to hit in say the next year, short term, and then more long-term? We talked a little bit about that, but what's the roadmap from here? Yeah, we're actually slowly rolling this out to coaches. So we're, we're starting with the coach market because one, I think they're an important kind of collaborators in helping us be successful. We want this to be the greatest tool that a coach can have in their back pocket, right? Like they don't need to invest $60,000 for a system in a lab setting. They can just get all the analysis they need right there on their phone. So we want this to be an amazing tool for them to help them teach better, learn more and make more money. So the first milestone for us is to get some level of penetration rate among the golf coaches in, in, in America. And after that, we want to get this out to the students so that, you know, the students and the coaches can work together really well in our app ecosystem and therefore make their relationship stronger. And then... And then by middle of next year, we'll have a product that a golfer can use, even if they don't have a golf coach. So we'll be using a lot of the data in the next six to 12 months of uh, this coaches and students relationship and all the data that, that we're get, getting from that to generate those insights that I talked about, about what causes missed shots, what causes somebody to hit it longer and work that into the app so that somebody can just use the app on their own and they'll they'll see a bunch of insights about their golf swing even without a human coach to interpret the data for them cool um, another milestone uh, that that's on my wish list is to have this be on every golf broadcast uh, if i can put that out there into the universe i want this to be part of every golf channel cbs you know tnt whatever have you when you're watching golf i want this to be just like top tracer where you're getting a lot more information and entertainment value out of every swing that they capture on broadcast. So you can see Bryson swing uh, when he hits it 40 yards right versus hits it, you know, 400 yards down the middle, what the difference was between swing A and B. The differences between John Rahm's swing and, you know, I don't know, Jordan Speed's swing. All of that being available right there as you're watching golf. When they showed the, the breakdown of the swing and they showed the ball that goes right and the ball that goes left, I see the same swing. Like, I don't know if my, if I'm just that untrained with my eye or if the announcer is making something up, but I, I think this could be really helpful actually breaking down where things kind of happen. So I, I like that angle a lot. And if you read Jeff Shackelford, he gives me my updates on golf media. Apparently there's some pretty significant cost cutting at Comcast NBC golf channel. So what's better than a product that could give you in-depth 3D swing analysis on a broadcast at a super low price point. So I'm on your side on this one, Jihei. I'm in on this. Thank you. I, I think the sports box is exciting. I think the best instructors these days are focusing on motion. It's not so much like, is the club outside your hands or inside your hands? It's like, really, how are you moving? And a lot of that's kind of coming to light with this TPI, Dave, this Dave guy at TPI with Works with Rom. 
helped my buddy Cameron Tringali gain 20 yards. Just told him like, dude, you're using your body completely wrong. Mm -hmm. I think you're catching the really smart people are on this right now. The Foley's and Mike Adams and John Tillery's, but Mm -hmm. I think it's the future of instruction and especially teaching kids like how to move athletically, how to move correctly. So it's really cool. Really exciting. Yeah. I cannot agree more. All right, Jihei. So switching gears a little bit, those are sort of the deeper, more in-depth questions. We'll finish off here with a couple segments that are much more quick hits. So the premium now is on speed and uh, more of like first, first answer that pops in your mind kind of thing. Okay. I'm, I'm ready. All right. If you weren't in the golf business, what would you be doing? I would have wanted, I would have pursued the route to become Justin Timberlake's backup dancer. All right. <laughs> Smart. I love it. Smart. Yep. Favorite golf course you've played. Oh gosh, I have to name drop here, Cypress. But Yale's golf course is a close second. We'll get to Yale. We'll talk about Yale. Don't worry. <laughs> Sounds like you have a grudge. That didn't sound like a positive. We'll get there. Okay. Coolest LPGA pro to hang out with. I mean, Michelle Lee, obviously, but Tiff Joe is one of my favorites. And she's just top of nine right now because she's announced her retirement. So Okay, I'm gonna throw one in here that's not on the list. We interviewed Jane Gettys amazing player lpga administrator and she worked for the wwe after the lpga so we asked her which lpga player would make the best wrestler go ahead man this is hard i'm gonna say danielle king because she just she's got spirit man and she's teeny tiny but she can she can yeah out wrestle anybody with her spirit so i like it Jane said Christina Kim, so that that might be the next sort of throwdown is Kang and Kim. What's the coolest moment in your life that only happened because of golf? They're just literally like every day I'm in situations where I'm like, wow, what like what did I do to be here talking to this person or doing this thing? I mean, every day. But one moment that really sticks out is I was playing in a AT&T customer event. Um, it's a really high-end event, Shinnecock and National back-to-back days. And, uh, you know, Top Golf being AT&T customer, they wanted one person from Top Golf to play in this event. Generally, that person is the CTO because CTO is the person that decides on what, you know, where to spend their money. But they insisted on having me there. And so I was there. And I thought it was going to be some big event with like 100 people. Um, I got there. There were three groups of foursomes. And there was an 18th executive in each of us, very small group. And they included people like president of McDonald's and president of city and all these people who flew in on private jets. And there's, there was little of me, director of strategy from Top Golf. <laughs> and honestly, without golf and having done what I had done uh, with golf, I, I honestly, I, mean, I wouldn't have been there. So, yeah. That's great. And I bet they all wanted to play as well as you. They would have traded that jet to shoot what you shot that day. I promise you. Enter sports box AI. Exactly. What's harder, managing pro athletes or managing a business? It's really funny. Those are really similar because you have so many things that are out of your own control, right? Probably managing a pro athlete because it's literally a human being, right? And you don't control their behavior, their actions, how they perform on the golf course and your job literally like 100% depends on that person. So, whereas with, with business, there are, there are a few more things under your control. So, yeah. That, I, I did not expect you to give that answer. That's awesome. I, I completely thought you were going to say managing a business. I mean, I'm just having fun right now. Like right now is like, I think one of the funnest times of sports buck. I think right now where we have a really cool product, we've built all this buzz and a lot of people want to be part of it. I have a long list, like a huge long wait list of people who are dying to be our beta testers. Like among me, them. I'm one yeah. of those people. Yeah. Like top one under coaches, like literally Susie Whaley, she signed up on our website to be a beta tester. So like right now, this is the funnest it's going to get. And once it's out there, I'm literally going to be the customer support line and doing all this stuff. Like things are going to break and, you know, it's inevitable that, that I'm going to have a lot more uh, problems to solve, but right now I'm just, I'm just having fun. Which test do you want to take again? The GMAT or Q school? (laughs) 
GMAT. Yeah, Q school is like something I don't wish on anybody else. I mean, anyone, not not on my worst enemy. Didn't you pass your it's first go round? Uh, yeah, I made it through my first time in finals. But like, I mean, Q school is like, at the end of the day, it's just golf. But for whatever reason, it's like the worst weather week of the year. It's usually like 40 degrees, 50 miles per hour wind and rain and like, and you're like, this is the most important week of my life. And it's like raining and you're freezing. Your fingers are turning blue and your dad's over there like freezing his butt off because he's got like one little like shell of a jacket on because he thought it was Florida. He thought it was going to be warm. Like <laughs> literally the worst things happen on this week. So yeah, I don't wish it on anyone. That's, that's so true. It, you can practice for months, weeks, and the day second stage of Q school hits it is 50 and windy no matter if you're playing in south florida north florida north carolina it doesn't matter it is so true it's so funny you say that yeah oh my or God. southern spain i played in european Q school once and thankfully i like did well but like it literally snowed one day and there was sheets of ice on the ground at noon like ice and like I mean, day one got canceled because it was so horrendous. I, I think I was one over through six hole. I thought I was like five under. It felt like I was shooting five under. That's hilarious. Yeah. Better metro area for golf, San Francisco or New York? Both cities you've lived in. San Francisco, 100%. I mean, they're very different. So New York is a great place for private clubs, right? There's so many great clubs you can play at. And if you have a, access to a car or a helicopter, I guess, you can you know go to some really really amazing places historic places but san francisco is sneaky one of the best public golf cities so starting with the presidio and harding park like all these great courses like amazing courses you can access for 80 bucks around if you have a you know resident card and, and my husband you know started playing two and a half years ago in san francisco and honestly i couldn't believe how easy it was to just you know go to really great courses to get him started. As a former pro, actually this question is for both of you. You walk into a top golf venue trying to set a record and taking a peek at what it's going to take to set that record, or are you able to sort of distract yourself from that? I'm really bad at top golf, actually. I score so poorly at a top golf. I, for whatever reason, I don't swing like myself at a, at a top golf venue. So like, yeah, I'm, I don't even try to compete. I spend more time on the sofa behind the bay than I do in the in the hitting bay. It's where the wings and beer are, so that's good enough for me. I don't believe either of you, but I did go to the Top Golf in Atlanta. I saw Chris Kirk at the top of the leaderboard there one time, and of course, you know, I pretended to try to get there. Of course, it didn't happen. So that, that's where that inspiration for that question. Uh, good to know, Kirk. He's one of those guys who brings his own clubs to Top Golf. Probably like had a guy there stretching him out. The whole deal. Good to know. I didn't know he was that kind of guy. But last one for me before we go to Roberto's section. Who has the most recognizable swing on sports box AI? John Rahm. So his backswing goes to like here and then it goes there. So like most people are like, oh, is it Tony Vino? John Rahm. Yeah. It's the it's the golden tee swing, mostly forward, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, Jihei, my section is called buy or sell. So these are just quick hits. Buy or sell, Tesla stock. Buy. Buy or sell simulator golf. Buy. Buy or sell Bitcoin. I, I do not know. I guess buy. My mom was like, hey, do you have you heard of this thing called dog coin? She's sitting <laughs> in Korea. <laughs> and so if my mom knows about it, it's probably something that's like happening. So yeah. That's great. Buy or sell the Yale golf course. I have to say buy. Okay, so no, here's the story. So Here's the story. When I was 18, freshman in college, we played the East Regional at Yale. And I thought it was an absolute dumpster fire. I couldn't stand the golf course. Now, again, I wasn't as worldly and well-traveled as I am now. So I'm dying to go back and play it because the photos look cool. And I've learned, you know, a little bit more about golf courses since then. But I have a teammate, we still talk about like, you know, we'll be like, is that course any good? And he'll be like, yeah, it's awesome. Just like Yale is awesome. So <laughs> that's, that's my Yale story. So I was, yeah. dying, I was dying to ask you that. 
No, I, I, I really like it. It's one of my favorites. I just, I love tree line golf courses and it's, it's uh, got its own courts. So cool. Buy or sell music on the golf course. It really depends. Usually a buy, but like, unless I'm trying to play seriously. Okay. What kind of music? Like nineties pop, like NSYNC and Britney. Buy or sell getting an MBA and then going on to work in sports. Oh, hundred percent buy. All right. Well, you passed our test. You passed the GMAT, Q School. You, you did it all today on the Course Record Show. So Awesome. Thanks so much for being on. Really enjoyed the conversation. Best of luck with Sportsbox AI. You got two, two fans rooting for you here, and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, guys. Good luck. All right, Dan, takeaways. What's the first thing you thought of when we wrapped up the conversation with Jihei? On a very personal level, I sort of saw the role that golf played in Jihei's life and the way it oscillated, super personable to me. Uh, I played junior golf growing up, had a low handicap, but then I quit in my junior year of high school and didn't play until I was 25 or 26 again. Now, I wasn't ever aspiring to be a pro, but the fact that she quit in her sophomore and junior years in college, came back to play her senior year rolled right through Q school and made it her first time around was super interesting to me. And now she plays for fun and she's kicking it with friends like, like I am, but, but I'm curious going back to the actual playing and asking you as a pro, you know, does the fact that she didn't need golf that badly, could that have helped her in things like Q school and getting through some of those high pressure packed moments? What's your take on that? That's a good question. I think that there's two schools of thought, whether you need it or you don't. Some people who've been highly successful in sports and other things will give you the old line, throw your backup plan out the window. If you have a backup plan, you're preparing to fail. And I get it. And I think that back against the wall can lead to great performance. On the flip side, you have people who feel like, hey, what's the worst thing that could happen here at Q School, right? And that could have helped Jihei. She could have said, I have an Ivy League degree. I'm 22 years old. I'm going to Q school. And of course there's pressure because you want to play well. And you know, the first tee shot that par three over water, of course there's nerves, but you could also step back and say, I don't need this. I will still be fine. So there's, there's two schools of thought. And then, you know, some people use their faith in a similar way. You know, you hear Webb Simpson or Russell Henley, I think specifically during this year's U S open said that, you know, my identity as a person is tied up in my family and my faith, and I don't need golf. And that frees me up to go out and just play to play great. And that's a cool way to think about the game as well. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I, uh, I, I, I could see it both cutting both ways. So fast forwarding to today, it sure sounds like Jihei is trying to help a lot of golfers get better with her coaching technology and sportsbox.ai, which I think is super cool. And the technology in the coaching space isn't super new, but I like this new take on it. What are your, what are your thoughts on technology in, in performance improvement in general and how it's evolving? You've been closer to it than I have, certainly. Yeah, I think like a lot of things in golf, you have to split the conversation into tour players and amateur golfers. So how does this 3D technology help a tour player and his instructor? I think it helps a lot. Tour players have their coaches come on the road where you don't have a fancy camera system, you don't have gears for sure, 3D. Now you do. Sportsbox brings that to the driving range of PGA Tour events, and that can be very helpful. Flipping to the amateur side, I mean, I'll turn the question back to you. I think it can be helpful. I think it has a little bit less value in just that a 20 handicap or a 15 handicap needs some basic instruction to help them improve. That being said, Golfers love gear. Golfers love tech. They love, you know, they don't need a new driver to help them play better, but they want one. So I do think there's going to be demand for this product in the market. I think it's cool. I, I was surprised that it was very much positioned as a, not death to the instructor, but as a friend to the instructor, right? And that's, I don't know why I had that assumption that it would be a replacement for an instructor versus an aid. But once I kind of heard that take on it, and, and you two discussing that specific element of it, I was really bought in on the idea because I don't know enough about my golf swing or, or the golf swing period to put it on camera and then find out, okay, 
here are the things that are that are making me do what I'm doing wrong, right? I can put it up against a Golf Digest picture and know if that's good or bad aesthetically, but I can't tell you, okay, stuff starts going wrong at this point, and from here I can't recover. So I, I kind of like that idea of it. And um, you know, we always joke on this podcast of how I'm up in Boston and my my season's really short. So as a supplement for a very long winter and a chance to do something like this and kind of stay active with the game. I, I like it. It keeps my head in the game all year, especially when I can't get out to the range as easily. So I, I really like that angle that this brings to the table. Yeah. And I think you're on point. Step one of sports box does not replace the instructor. You use the 3d model and an instructor interprets it for you. Step two kind of does replace the instructor. When you have all the data on the motion and then you tie it to shot and club data, like she said, and then the machine learning or AI starts to build the cause and effect relationships of, okay, 10 handicap that slices, you know, turns his right shoulder straight over the top. All of a sudden, if the app can tell you that, do you still need the instructor? So I'm not sure that it doesn't eventually go full matrix on on these golf coaches what do you think yeah it might come down to what the what the player wants right like you're right it might be able to go full matrix but yeah someone just took a lesson a few weeks ago and really liked it i I really kind of enjoy the chance of like real-time feedback getting the feels right having a conversation about it putting it in analogies that that delivery of the instruction even though it could have been the same thing that the app was spitting out was was kind of cool yeah and i think it speaks to human nature more generally. If an app and AI can diagnose my shoulder pain, I still want to talk to a doctor. I still want to ask him like, why, when I move my arm like this, does it hurt? What's, what is actually torn in there? This is a similar thing. Like you said, you had a great experience connecting with an instructor, human to human, just like Chad says, he has great relationships with some of his students, Chad Parker. That's the bare case for an app replacing uh, PGA pros. Well, my pro also has a cool Aussie accent. So maybe that's a good feature request for Jihei is to put some good, good Aussie accents in the app for whatever voiceover she's doing. That might, uh, that might make it a hit. I mean, what situation is not helped by an Australian accent? Name me one. You have to ask a Brit for that. I don't, I can't think of one. <laughs> nice. All right. But Sportsbox AI was not Jihei's first foray into the golf and technology business. I was fascinated by her conversation, her experience at Top Golf. For sure, this is the number one thing on my list of like, if I could have done something else in my career and kept it with golf, it would have been Top Golf. So I love Top Golf, but I also hate it from that jealousy perspective. And uh, I, I, I see it as such a cool thing in bringing so many people into the sport and getting a very low pressure experience with golf. What are your What are your thoughts, RC? Like, is this a good or bad thing for the game in general? I think it's a great entry point into golf and very similarly to how the first tee can bring junior players in, but it's that next step that's challenging is getting people consistently to a golf course to play nine holes or play 18 holes. Top golf is going to have the same challenges going to top golf once a quarter with your buddies and having beers is great. Somebody who's never touched a club or hit a ball does that. Do they take that second step to buying a set of clubs and finding a place to go play nine holes every couple of weeks? I don't know, but it's a hot space, man. It's really, really fascinates me. You've got private simulator clubs. You've got a new place in Alpharetta here called Fairway Social. The cost of simulators is coming down to where you can have one in your own basement in Boston, let's say. So alternate golf facilities is a hot space and top golf. I can't remember if it's 10 acres. It's a big lot that you need, right? These simulator models, you don't need 10 acres of dirt. So I don't know how that all plays out, but I'm definitely interested to see. Yeah, I've been checking out the rumors. They've been talking about putting up top golf up here in Boston. It hasn't happened despite some rumors. 10 acres is hard to come by in a spot that's also close to a metro area. So it's a tricky, tricky real estate play for sure. Yeah, but how perfect was top golf for Jihei? She comes out of business school. She has a lifetime of experience in golf. She's the right age for the target customer and demographic of Top Golf. Obviously, super intelligent. Like, what a great role for her. And she said she learned so much, had mentors. I just thought that was a great fit. And 
she was very thankful for that time in her career. And I just kept thinking, my gosh, that was a great win for Top Golf and for Jihei. And a great pivot into the tech business, which he eventually embraced, right, as a founder anyway. So I, I agree with you. What a, what a great and inspired choice with so many possibilities at our fingertips. Yeah, agree. I agree. I have to think that the one thing you didn't mention that I think could have been also really important for her experience is the time that she spent managing Michelle Wee, right? She'd already known a little bit about the golf business from a very different angle, granted, but but having that coming in to say, okay, I've played in the LPGA, obviously, I've managed one of the top brands in the game. And to be able to take that and, and launch something completely new with that as her, her foundation, talk about picking a race you can win, but still be challenged by. I think that's, I think it's a key to great careers. And I think she really embraced that, that chapter of her career. And that time forming corporate sponsorships, connecting Michelle Wee to other great brands. She was director of brand strategy at Topgolf. I think it was one of her titles. So very similar, great preparation at kind of a micro level, because you just need somebody to buy into one person, which is Michelle Wee versus buy into a corporation or a concept like Topgolf. So I agree. That was um, her career arc has been very cohesive, despite being a, very unique. Hey, let's pull a thread on the alternate golf facilities thing. Jihei made this comment that we didn't dive into too much, but this is a good time to do it now around how half of the world's driving ranges are in Japan and Korea. And I've heard stories about people in Japan, you know, quadruple decker ranges and people hitting the balls into the night. And that's how they get their handicap, right? Like a pro comes in, maybe he or she has an Aussie accent. I don't know, gives, gives this golfer a handicap and that's their relationship with golf. And they go back to the next day, the driving range and try to bring that range handicap lower. We're doing this as the Olympics are being played right now in Japan with golf still featuring, of course. And, and I wonder whether the Olympics and golf will have an impact in the game's popularity. And in those countries specifically, do you think it's going to mean like more ranges and people doing, doing it that way? Or do you think people will actually sort of quote unquote graduate to the golf club experience as a result? You've, you've traveled the world a little bit. I'm curious on your take here. I've only played in China once. I've never been to Japan. It's my number one place I want to go, Tokyo specifically. But I think of the, a big driver and the tour had a big role in pushing golf into the Olympics was to grow the game in that part of the world. I think the Chinese government for a while, golf had a big growth period in China. And there was a time where it was, I think, kind of in the crosshairs of the Chinese government. So if you have the government say 1.3 billion people can't play golf anymore, or they're not going to support it, you're killing a fifth of your potential growth market. When they put it in the Olympics, the Chinese are super obsessed with the Olympics and winning medals and having a worldwide stature through the Olympics. I think it cemented golf's future in China. So I think, I think it's, it was a big, a big part of it. I, I did not know about that, about that relationship between China and golf. That's uh, that's super interesting and raises all sorts of questions for, for a different day. The, that's, the, the that's, range the, that's the course record show though. You know, once one day you're talking about sports box, the next obvious guest now is somebody who's an expert on us Chinese relations. That's, that's, what's great about this show. That's the, the business of golf or the geopolitics of golf, the, the geopolitics, of geopolitics of golf. Let's get it all on here. Yeah, we'll get a we'll get a Xi Jinping on the line for the next episode. I'm sure. Yeah, is anybody at the State Department available? Call us up. Uh, all right, what were you going? What were you saying about the, oh the ranges? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me. This range thing fascinates me, right? Like, I, I get that land is hard to come by for a course, and let alone in a range too. But do you, do you think this range culture has potential to grow? And is that does that sustain a golfing population? In your opinion? I think it does. I've seen it in my neighborhood. The golf course that we've talked about before on the show, Bobby Jones, you know, Bobby Jones, five years ago, they renovated it. They went from 18 holes to nine and they added a driving range and it's a really nice range and it is packed all day long. And I think that is, is proof close to home for me that you have a population that has two extra hours a week and will go hit golf balls. And I think that's great. So it doesn't surprise me that, uh, that you can engage golfers through a driving range experience. Yeah, I, 
I agree. I, I asked the question knowing what I thought my answer was, but it was, it was great to get your take too, because you've seen it from a different angle. My wife's not a golfer, but she, she loves going to the range and bringing in some beers and just hitting the ball around a little bit. She's, she's game for that experience. Maybe that, maybe that's the stripped down top golf uh, model that they obviously souped up a lot. It's a fun way, I think, to get people exposed to the game and it takes off some of the, some of the starch off the collar as our friend and past guest, Brian Ferris would say. Yeah, it does that. And it's something you can do by yourself or with somebody like if you and I are going to go play tennis, we have to be a very similar level to have a good tennis match. That's the big thing about golf and the driving range experience specifically. If you want to go to the YMCA and play basketball, if there's a bunch of college kids in there, it's the wrong game for you. If it's the over 60 crowd, it's the wrong game. It's very hard to find something you can do on your own or with one other person. And golf does that, especially going just to the right to the range. Totally agree. We just got to get the, the terminology right. Real golfers say, I'm going to hit balls. That's what they say. And my three year my five-year-old daughter, like two years ago, she came in and I was like, Hey, you want to go to the golf course or you want to, what do you want to do? And she was like, we could go hit some balls. And I was like, I am succeeding. I am succeeding as a father. <laughs> Call it what you will. I I'm, I'm just glad that I don't have a handicap based on the range. Cause that, that would lose me a lot of bets on the actual course. You're flush on the range. I'm better on the range. Uh, I am great, too. but it's, uh, I am too. It's a, it's a confidence boost for sure. Yeah. Dead flat and you get in a rhythm. That's the thing about the range. The key to playing good golf on the course is to get in a rhythm. It's so much easier to do on a driving range. Yeah. Hi, Roberto. I think that gives us a wrap here on episode seven. Uh, Awesome conversation with Jihei. Thank you, Jihei, for the time. Hope the listeners enjoyed. And if you did, please subscribe to the Course Record Show. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you can. And look forward to following Jihei's career and where Sportsbox AI goes. The Course Record Show is produced by Roberto Castro and Dan Ferreira. Executive producer, John Robinson.